and welcome to NewsHour Live from the BBC World Service with me, Rebecca Kesby. In a moment, we'll hear about the widespread abuse suffered by choir boys at a prestigious school in Germany. Revealed in an official report today, it went on for decades. And later in the programme, as President Trump voices disappointment after another setback in Republican efforts in the US Senate to scrap the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, one mother tells us why she's worried about her son's cancer treatment as a result. He has had multiple surgeries. He has had five very intense rounds of chemo. He has had a radiation stem cell transplant without insurance at all, would have probably come to $2 million. Even with the insurance, the deductible out-of-pocket costs were about $25,000 a year. We'll have more on that story in about 30 minutes. But we begin in Germany, where an official report has found that more than 500 members of the Regensburger Dormspatzen Boys Choir were abused over a period of six decades. The choir is world famous. Well, the choristers typically stayed in the strict boarding school connected to the choir and some of the survivors of abuse describe their time there as a living hell. The report claims nearly 50 church officials and teachers were implicated. For many years, the elder brother of the former pope was the choir master of the choir, although Georg Ratzinger, who's now 93, is not accused of perpetrating any sexual abuse. Well, Ulrich Weber was the lawyer who compiled the report. Verantwortlich für die Gewalt. In many cases, those responsible for the violence in the choir school were the director himself and his prefect, who over decades were the shaping figures of the institution. However, many employees from the three sectors, school, choir music education and boarding school, were actively involved in the violence. In general, it must be assumed that almost all people in charge at the Domspatzen at least had partial knowledge about acts of violence, but that they showed little interest in the subject. Well, the Catholic Church has responded to the findings of the report with an apology. Michael Fuchs is the leading priest of the Reisenberg Diocese. We have all we have all made mistakes and learned a lot. We see today that we could have done things better. And I think it is also our responsibility to now investigate the underlying reasons for what happened over those years. Earlier, I spoke to Katerina Haringer, who's a journalist with Bavarian Public Radio, and she told me how this story came to light. The choir, the boys' choir, called the Regensburger Domspatzen, are really famous. It's one of the oldest boys' choirs in Germany and in, in Europe, in the world. And you have to be a part of the boarding school, of the primary school at first, and after that at boarding school, to join in this famous choir. So the school is very important as well. Well, allegations about abuse at this school have been sort of trickling out over the past few years, haven't they? But mm -hmm. what has the publication of this report now done to that story? And, and what was revealed that we didn't know before? In 2010, the first victim of sexual abuse came forward. And since then, more and more have spoken publicly about similar incidents and therefore the public wasn't 
surprised, but the scope of how many, more than 500 verified statements of abuse, this was very shocking. And the scope was something which was new. Yeah, I mean, the numbers really are staggering mm-hmm. and, it, and it does involve uh, physical and verbal abuse as well as uh, sexual abuse. Yeah. And, and those numbers um, are ones that they can verify. But one thing that is causing uh, a lot of interest is the fact that that choir was run for a number of years by the elder brother of the former Pope Benedict, um, his mm-hmm. brother Georg Ratzinger, and mm-hmm. he was mentioned in this report. Yes, he was. He made the choir very famous. And in this report, Ratzinger himself says all over the years he did not know the scope of abuse. He did not know and he did not recognize that children had been victims of sexual abuse. He said, yes, there was a kind of violence, there was physically violence, like it happened in the 60s and 70s, but he always said there was no sexual abuse. Nonetheless, he did run that choir for a number Mm. of years, and uh, uh, no doubt there will be questions as to how this did go uncovered for so Mm -hmm. long. Um, This is a question nobody can answer today. It's such a long time ago, and today uh, Ratzinger is still alive, but today he does not want to say anything. So his role will be, yeah, will be seen critical or as in, in the future as well. Critical or will be criticized? Both. This report also says that no one will face criminal charges uh, because the cases date back too far. But are there people in Germany who think that the perpetrators of this abuse ought to face charges? Most of the perpetrators are already dead. And as you already said, with all of the abuse cases being past the statute of limitations, none of this will go to court. However, the diocese, the the church here in Regensburg, has agreed to pay the victims compensation, voluntary. What what does all this do for the reputation of this choir and the church there in Germany? Today we have a totally new generation and a new thinking of um, how to handle with things like this. And um, the choir today tries to communicate very clearly, tries to prevent any kind of abuse. They work together with parents, with teachers, with yeah, with the church. They try to be open, to be transparent. Today, the choir, they learned from history, and today it's a very safe place for, for children to make music. And that was Katerina Haringer there, a journalist with Bavarian Public Radio who's been following uh, this story. Well, one of the first survivors of the abuse to speak out was Alexander Probst. He was a pupil at the choir school in the late 60s and early 70s. And he's been giving me his response to today's report. The report we hear today was 
a very hard thing for us because we had so much information now about the real numbers uh, of little children who were treated very bad. And now, after seven year, years fighting, to hear this big number of uh, children was very hard. You were one of the first to speak out about it, I think, back in 2010. Um, yeah. How difficult was it for you to first talk about the abuse you suffered? It was not very difficult for me to talk in 2010 about it because in the moment when I left the Regensburg at Umspatzen in 1971, I told it everyone who wanted to hear what happened to me. And so I did all the next years when I've been in other schools and so on, and also when I've been a soldier uh, for 12 years, I, everybody who wanted to know or didn't want to know, I told what happened to me. You say you spoke about it for all those years. Did anyone listen to you? To me, listened only my friends. I don't know if you ever did tell any of uh, the priests or, or other people yeah. involved in the church of what you suffered? No, I didn't uh, talk to them because I was happy to have no contact to them. That came uh, in, in two, uh, 2010. Then I said, now I want to see you and now I want to fight against you. So, I mean, I don't know whether there was one particular perpetrator in, in your case or whether there were... Uh, several people who who uh, treated you badly, but yes. what what happened to you? Oh, I I had a lot of uh, violence to uh, to bear. I had a lot of violence to bear, and um, I also had sexual abuse by a young priest uh, over more than a year, every nearly every day. Mm. And yes, it was. All things you can read in this report happened to me. And how old were you when this was going on? I've been between 8 and 11 years old. So very young then. Yeah. very. I started with 8 years in, in 2000 in the first school of Ringsburger Domspatzen and uh, I came... Uh, with 10 years to Regensburg, and in Regensburg started sexual abuse. Before, in 2008 to 10, it was uh, violence with, <laughs> with everything you you can, yeah, you can think of it. With been uh, uh, with the hands and with the body and <laughs> with the with a uh, how to say uh, violin. Uh, um, um, how, with what do you play a violin with a, a bow? Bow with a bow, with violin bows and so on. They they closed the uh, piano while playing with your hands on it, mm. and a lot of more. It was. Uh, I mean, we have had a statement from the church today uh, saying yeah. that the the church has learned from this, that the situation at that particular school has now changed. Um, are you satisfied that things have changed and that this won't ever happen again? Yeah. Yes, I'm satisfied about it because it really changed. And I know that children are living there are now uh, in, a, in, a, in a fine school. And they, the people have a look at the children and they take care of them. Uh, I think it will not happen again what happened in those times. How has your relationship with music and certainly with the religion been affected mm. by all of this? Yes, the religion was not my favourite uh, thing after that time, I didn't even sing, and I cannot anymore play the piano. 
I, I took a teacher and, and we tried, but I cannot. I'm sitting there, put a hand on the piano, and I can't play. No possibility for me. That's what happened with me uh, because of those things. And that was Alexander Probst there, who was a pupil at the uh, the choir school, talking to us early and uh, reminiscing on uh, what he suffered in the late 60s and early 70s and uh, how that affected the rest of his life and indeed relationship with music. A reminder that if you miss any part of News Hour, you can always listen back to it online. And if you like, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast. It's very easy to do, and we uh, put a new one up every uh, day, uh, two, in fact, every day. Just uh, do a search for BBC News Hour podcast. And if you'd like to comment on the programme, you can always get in touch on Twitter. Our address is at BBC News Hour. Still to come on NewsHour, the South Korean defector who's mysteriously reappeared in the North. Well, the public had really no inkling that anything untoward had happened until she showed up on North Korean television where she said she had actually been very unhappy in the South. Um, she had to make a living uh, working at bars, which in, the, in South Korea usually means um, rather unsavory business of dealing with drunken men and perhaps even involving prostitution. Um, she said she felt constant pressure to talk badly of North Korea and she couldn't deal with it anymore, and now she's back in the north. More on that to come. And one other headline, President Trump has voiced disappointment after another setback in Republican efforts in the US Senate to scrap Obamacare. More on that to come later in the programme. This is Rebecca Kesby with NewsHour live from the BBC. Now, Tyrannosaurus rex, the most terrifying dinosaur of every kid's dream or perhaps nightmare, racing across the prehistoric world, stalking its victims. Except new research suggests that actually T-Rex was a hefty, leaden-footed slow coach, incapable of getting up to more than a few kilometres an hour, even with the wind behind it. It's all based on a new computer analysis of its skeleton carried out uh, at the University of Manchester in the north of England. And Dr William Sellers has been telling me all about it. What we found out, basically, was that T-Rex was unable to run and that its maximum speed would have been a fast walk. And we did that by digitising the entire skeleton, so every single bone, and we put it into the computer and assembled it up to a full skeleton. And then we put muscles on the skeleton based on what we know from dissections of modern birds and crocodiles and alligators. And then we gave the whole thing to a robotic simulation system that uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to work out how this animal could have moved. And... Initially, we got it to produce um, sort of 30 kilometre per hour runs, which looked quite reasonable. But then we calculated the forces that were acting on the skeleton and realised that the skeleton was just not strong enough and that actually anything faster than a fast walk and the legs just shatter. 
Oh dear. Well, I mean, this is very disappointing for um, dinosaur <laughs> fans to hear that T Rex was a, a lumbering, plodding, uh, overweight, fat. <laughs> I mean, it's not what we like to think of for T Rex, is it? Um, uh, but what does it tell us then about its life? Because when you watch all these programs and TV um, movies about how T Rex would hunt for prey, you've got these long legs streaking across the plains and catching uh, some poor unsuspecting animal. Animal, but how would it have hunted then? Would it need to be more clever about how it would catch things if it couldn't chase them? So that is exactly the problem. You've got to work out what it would eat. And, and I think there are two things to remember. One is that T-Rex was slower than we think. Probably the things that T-Rex was eating were also a little bit slower. So it may well have been things that it wanted to catch were just a little bit slower than it was. Um, also, there is this long-going um, theory that actually T-Rex is perhaps much more of a scavenger than a hunter mm. because th there would have been a lot of dead herbivores um, that it could have just gone up to and eaten. And then, of course, being big and fierce is actually very useful because it means you can monopolise the corpse that you've just found. Right, OK, that does sound pretty gruesome. Um, and, and also, yes, you make the point that lots of other things were moving, plodding along quite slowly too, because one thing that it's hard for us to imagine, isn't it, nowadays is the sheer size of these beasts that used to roam around. That was one of the things I was really taken with in Jurassic Park was this scope of just having lots and lots of dinosaurs all moving around in sort of big herds. And that must have been exactly what it was like. And and these things were huge. And you only have to think back to those photographs of the buffaloes on the prairie to realise that, you know, before people are there, you get enormous numbers of herbivores. So there would have been food. And what, what else can we learn about T-Rex and perhaps other dinosaurs of the era from this sort of technology? Well, one of the things that's really interesting is that, obviously, baby T-Rexes, uh, they start off about the size of a football because that's how big the egg is, and they grow over the space of about 20 years into adults. And one of the things that we've, we've shown previously is that when you're smaller, you are actually much faster. So you have this really nice system where you've got sort of angry adolescent um, <laughs> T-Rexes you know, running around really quite fast and therefore able to eat very different food from the adults. And that means there's less competition between sort of different members of the family. And that actually might be a really good idea. Oh, great. So there still was quite a lot of bloodthirsty violence going on back then. It, it's um, <laughs> we, our, our image of T-Rex doesn't have to be completely changed then? No, no, no. I'm sure it was a, an extraordinarily unsafe place for a time traveller to end up. I mean, there would have been an awful lot of um, big predators and, and the not so big as T-Rex ones, the ones that, you know, less than a tonne would have been relatively fast moving. Dr William Sellers from Manchester University there. Now the US premiere of Dunkirk takes place today in New York. It's one of the most eagerly awaited films of the year and focuses on the evacuation from the coast of northern France in 1940 of more than 300,000 British and Allied soldiers. Tom Brook has this report. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. 
Dunkirk chronicles a huge military operation, the mass 1940 evacuation of more than 300,000 British and Allied troops from the French coast who'd become hemmed in by the Germans. The film's aim, to immerse audiences in the operation by following soldiers on the beach, pilots in the air and ordinary civilians who took small pleasure boats across the English Channel to aid in the evacuation. Director Christopher Nolan, a filmmaker more accustomed to peddling fantasy in movies, doesn't see it as a war film. I've never fought in a war. It's, it's my worst nightmare to do so. I think telling a straight war story would be very daunting for me. I, it would feel maybe a little presumptuous. I'm not sure I'd have the confidence to do that. But what drew me to this story is it is a survival story, first and foremost. And it seems to me that it's one of the great suspense stories of all time, that there's this, this ticking clock, this, this you know, urgency to try and escape from the enemy to get back home. Dunkirk is a risky project for Warner Brothers, the American studio backing it, especially in relation to the US market. It has Harry Styles, former One Direction British pop sensation in the cast, but there are no American stars, and it's presenting a World War II conflict of which the target audience of young American males knows little. Alison Wilmore is a film critic for BuzzFeed News. I think it's an enormous gamble, Dunkirk is. I mean, it's such an expensive film. Uh, that said, Christopher Nolan has a huge following, and maybe more than any other working director, certainly in terms of an impassioned internet fan base and a young male fan base. And I think that there's something about the way he's talked about the film, it's mathematical almost, that appeals to his fan base. And so I think that if anyone can make a film like that work and appeal to young men who have no idea about this part of history in any way, it's him. And director Christopher Nolan is well aware of the risk involved in making Dunkirk. Every film on this scale is always a tremendous gamble. And I think as a filmmaker, I've been very fortunate to have financial success with the films in the past. And that gives me a little more trust from the studio, it gives me a bit of latitude to try and push boundaries, push the boundaries of what you might be able to do on this scale. British story on an American budget. I was in a position to be able to make that happen and I feel that I have that responsibility as a filmmaker to try and do something that perhaps other filmmakers aren't you know, given the freedom to do. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. The film is reverential in tone. It's not, of course, paying tribute to a military victory. Instead, it's honouring the heroism of those who survived and triumphed in the wake of a strategic defeat. To Mark Rylance, who plays a civilian at the helm of a small vessel rescuing soldiers, the film is presenting that Dunkirk spirit of people rallying around at a time of great adversity. It was a miraculous retreat, and in that way it was a victory because if they hadn't had that miraculous retreat, we would have been mighty short of men. Prime Minister Winston Churchill described Dunkirk as a miracle of deliverance. Christopher Nolan would no doubt agree with that assessment. The ambition for the operation was to get 35, maybe 45,000 men off that beach. And in the end, they got 328,000. So that's an extraordinary achievement. It's a victory from the jaws of defeat. I think there's nothing more human than that, really, as a relatable and consuming story. Christopher Nolan there, ending that report from Tom Brook. And the premiere of Dunkirk is in New York today.
You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then you know you can uh, take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service. You could download Witness, for example, which is remarkable stories, first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or for a roundup of the very best news on the BBC World Service, try our Global News podcast. Coming up in a moment, more details on the latest setbacks for President Trump's pledge to repeal Obamacare. But first, after the terrible tower block fire in London last month that killed around uh, 80 people, new allegations about the known problems of electrical safety in the building. Documents seen by the BBC show how electricity power surges at Grenfell Tower caused dozens of residents' electrical appliances to malfunction. The BBC's Andrew Hoskins has the detail. These concerns go back four years. There was a series of power surges at the tower block during 2013, and one in May 2013 was so powerful it affected 45 of the 129 apartments in the tower. Appliances blew up, they malfunctioned, they overheated, they started emitting smoke. And I spoke to Councillor Judith Blakeman. Now, she's a local Labour councillor in that area of London and she was also on the tenant management organisation that was responsible for the block. I got lots of complaints from residents about a power surge that affected a part of the block and, as a result, they had lost the use of all their electrical equipment, including laptops, computers, fridges. And some of them complained that um, there was smoke coming out of, of the equipment at the time when the power surge happened. So, Andy, this must have caused a great deal of concern at the time. Was the problem solved after that? Well, Judith Blakeman said that it was never satisfactorily resolved. She never got the, the answer that she, she wanted. Now, what happened after that, um, there were continuous problems with lifts and electricity meters and so on. Then we had this controversial refurbishment that included the installation to the outside of the tower block of, these, of this cladding, which was thought to have been so important in the spread of the fire. But there were people in the block who were very worried about the electrical installations that were a part of this refurbishment. Now, I spoke to student Sajad Jamalvatan, who moved into a flat on the third floor of Grenfell Tower only in August last year, and he said there was whole lots of problems with the electricity in the tower block. The meter should not make any noise unless you reach the credit of nothing, like zero. I actually have to take the battery off that meter. I also spoke to Joe Delaney. Now, he is a member and a spokesman for the Grenfell Action Group, which was a residence action group which blogged their concerns about electricity problems at the time, particularly about the surges. There's been lots of issues with the electrics, the lighting, the heating, the lift, the entry buzzer system. There seem to be a litany of problems there. So, Andy, what happens next then? How might this affect the investigation into the disaster? Well, of course, the issue is that the fire itself, we believe, and certainly the police believe, actually started in a fridge on the fourth floor of the tower block. And this is why these documents and these interviews are so important. These concerns will be investigated by both the, uh, the public inquiry that's been launched and also by the police who are conducting their own investigation. And, of course... We must say, I've gone to the, both the Tenant Management Organisation and the Council. Both of them said they cannot comment on these revelations because of those inquiries. Andy Hoskin with that report. And you can read more details on that story on our news website. Just search bbcnews.com.
You're listening to News Hour live from the BBC in London with me, Rebecca Kesby. Now, we've been talking about Donald Trump's efforts to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, or so called Obamacare, for what seems, well, like quite a while. Uh, but a proposed Senate vote on repealing it now looks likely to fail because it's opposed by a number of Republican senators. This is what President Trump had to say about that today. I'm certainly disappointed for seven years I've been hearing repeal and replace from Congress, and I've been hearing it loud and strong, and then when we finally get a chance to repeal and replace, they don't take advantage of it. So that's disappointing. We're probably in that position where we'll just let Obamacare fail. Uh, We're not going to own it. I'm not going to own it. I can tell you the Republicans are not going to own it. We'll let Obamacare fail, and then the Democrats are going to come to us, and they're going to say, how do we fix it? How do we fix it? Or how do we come up with a new plan? President Trump, a short time ago, and to unpick what all that means, we'll be talking to our Washington correspondent shortly. But first, let's hear from someone who's directly affected by all this. Melissa Leitzen's son suffers from a type of childhood cancer with just a 50% survival rate. She says Medicaid, which is one of the provisions in that act, has helped her to pay for his treatment. So how would letting that act fail affect her? We'd go back to the time where we didn't have the ACA Obamacare, which at the time I didn't have any children and I was a healthy young adult and it didn't matter too much. But the fact that we're going to have the collapse of Obamacare, which may or may not happen, and therefore not have the protections for the pre-existing conditions, lifetime caps, and the Medicaid expansion, um, I'm not sure how that would go. I do live in New York State, which um, is looking towards uh, a health care plan of its own. But with everything up in the air and his you know, cancer up in the air, it, it just adds another layer of uncertainty and anxiety in a situation that's already gut-wrenching. Difficult time for you, Melissa. Um, just talk us through uh, your son's condition. Uh, Lucas has um, a form of cancer, I understand, uh, but, but you have got health insurance. You have managed to get uh, good quality care for him. But have you been affected by the Affordable Care Act so far? Well, we did have the insurance long before he had a pre-existing condition, and it's been actually a very good policy. They've covered what they said they would cover. We've gone to multiple hospitals, um, some out of state, to get some care and surgery for him. But the biggest part of the ACA that has helped us, which I didn't even know was possible, is the Medicaid expansion, even though We don't qualify for Medicaid. Um, My son, being a person who doesn't have his own income, when he did have a debilitating condition, he had multiple tubes in him, central lines, he did qualify for uh, the Medicaid waiver, and uh, that was brought about by the expansion of Medicaid thanks to the ACA. So currently, you've you've been able uh, to get your son the care that he needs, and the Affordable Care Act has helped you in, in managing to to get that. Um, I mean, do you mind talking us through your circumstances and and how your family's managed to financially cope with this? I don't think we would. It would have been possible without that Medicaid expansion. I, I'm a self employed veterinarian. My husband is a self-employed farmer, and the amount of time we had to take off um, to be with my son, he has had multiple surgeries, he has had five very intense rounds of chemo, he has had uh, radiation, stem cell transplant, he's had to have reconstructive surgery 
on his ureter, all of these things taking place in the last 18 months without insurance at all would have probably come to $2 million. Even with the insurance, the deductible out-of-pocket costs were about $25,000 a year. And not to mention all the missed work, if we didn't have the um, Medicaid as well, I'm not sure what we would have done, to be honest. Gone into significant debt is what would have had to happen, because obviously I'm not going to compromise his care. Gone into significant debt, but I mean, you started in quite a good position. Lots of families in the U.S. wouldn't have been able to have got the sort of insurance that you had, uh, both of you having good jobs and that sort of thing. I mean, that that must have helped. Yes. Uh, like I said, it's it's a, it was a very good insurance policy, and that's the point of insurance. You hope you don't ever need it. But when something catastrophic happens, such as childhood cancer, to not have to worry about how you're going to take care of your child, pay for the hospital care, it's really helpful to, to know that, that you have that coverage. And Melissa, I mean, obviously, you've been very good speaking about your son's condition, and and that must be a a constant worry to you and your husband. But is there an added stress looking at the the way the policy is going and and not really knowing what's going to happen next? Yes, I was never one to want to take an interview. I have been doing a lot of protesting, which I'd never had done before. And my motivating factor really is this absurd debate that we're having about health care. It is a place for me to put my energy, my frustrations, because I want to get our voices heard. I'm hopeful that if enough of us are speaking, that maybe the politicians in Washington, D.C. will finally start to see that there is people's lives at stake. Melissa Leitzen there, whose son is dealing with cancer. So a lot of confusion and concern about what happens next in healthcare in the United States. And to help us make sense of it, here's the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue in Washington. Well, what the Republican leadership in the Senate are saying is that they are going to press ahead with this vote to repeal Obamacare. Now, as it seems at the moment, they don't have the votes to do that, three of their own are pledging to vote against that, including all of the Democrats. So if that goes ahead, then in a sense we're in in the same position as we are now, which is that Obamacare continues as is with no plan to repeal it or replace it. Now, there are some people uh, who will think that's a good thing. There are some people around the country who have seen their premiums go up pretty significantly under Obamacare uh, and do think there's a problem with it. President Trump thinks... The whole system will fail, uh, and he's prepared to see it fail because he says when it does, the Democrats will come back to him and ask him to work with him to to fix it. And that's what his plan is from now on. I mean, there have been many comments from the Democrat side as well as the Republicans about some of the problems with so-called Obamacare, that it's not a perfect system. Mm. Um, but we heard from Melissa there, who says the situation with health care in the US now is, in her words, absurd. What can uh, happen next in, in terms of... I mean, people are still taking treatment, people still have to plan their health care, uh, and this idea of letting it fail, where does that leave uh, the public? Well, it is tricky because you're talking about tens of millions of people here. Um, in excess of 20 million people took up Obamacare. Now, would all of those lose their insurance if it were if it were scrapped or if it failed? Probably not, but significant numbers would. The difficulty for those who are planning the system at the moment is that in some places there aren't 
uh, Obamacare sort of provisions on the local exchanges. There isn't enough competition. And that is some of the weaknesses. Weaknesses, as you say, Democrats recognise. Now, I think what, uh, what the Democrats here are saying now is, look, now is the time for a proper bipartisan approach, not something, incidentally, they did when they brought in Obamacare. They, they pushed it through pretty much without any Republican support. But it's a huge blow to the president because this was a signature policy, of course, and it's been something that's been a totemic for Republicans for the last seven years. And even with control of both houses of Congress and the White House, they can't get it done. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue in Washington, D.C. Now, what's become of a South Korean TV personality who made her name in Seoul by talking about her defection from the North? Lim Ji-hun defected in 2014 but has recently been reported missing and now a woman who looks just like her has been seen on this propaganda video in the northern capital Pyongyang. Well, in that broadcast, Lim Ji-hun claims that she voluntarily went back to the north, but friends in Seoul are concerned that she's actually been abducted. I've been speaking to Sei Wung Koo, who's co-founder and publisher of the online magazine Korea Exposé. He gave me the details. I believe she came to South Korea in 2014 and she made a name for herself as a media personality I wouldn't go so far as to call her a celebrity, but certainly she was on television, especially these um, rather conservative cable channels, and to talk about North Korea alongside other North Korean defectors. So she has uh, developed something of a following here. It's not uncommon for North Korean defectors, especially women who are young and beautiful, to go on television and make a name for themselves. So when was the alarm raised then um, about the suspicion that she may have been abducted or that at least that she had disappeared? Well, the public had really no inkling that anything untoward had happened until she showed up on North Korean television where she said she had actually been very unhappy in the South. Um, she had to make a living uh, working at bars, which in, the, in South Korea usually means um, rather unsavory business of dealing with drunken men and perhaps even involving prostitution. Um, she said she felt constant pressure to talk badly of North Korea and she couldn't deal with it anymore, and now she's back in the north. She said in that broadcast uh, put on the internet that she had gone back voluntarily, but there is some suspicion that that's not true. Well, we have to accept that North Korea has a history of kidnapping foreigners, especially South Korean citizens. According to the South Korean government, there are about 500 South Korean citizens that are being held against their will in the north. North Korea, of course, denies this. And there have been also other very high-profile kidnappings in the past. Um, so the question is, is the latest incident really part of this long-standing pattern? Or did she really go back voluntarily? Because that's also a possibility that, no, that people cannot discount. There is yet to be any real evidence showing what her motive might have been or how she ended up in North Korea again, in fact. And you are sure that it is her? I mean, she uses a different name, I think, in, in the broadcast from the North, but people say it looks just like her. Yeah, there is um, consensus here in South Korea, which is a rare thing, that indeed it is uh, one and the same person. There's no doubt about her identity. 
the only thing that is uh, in doubt is her motive. If it's indeed true that Im Ji-yeon was kidnapped by North Korea and taken back against her will, this is bound to be a big political headache for the current administration of President Moon Jae-in, um, considering the fact that they recently made an overture to the North to try and resume a high-level dialogue. Um, they are interested in engagement, despite the fact that they are also supporting sanctions. So, so, so there are many conservative politicians here in South Korea who do not want this happening and who are adamant that North Korea is absolutely evil. So if it's true that kidnapping is um, what has in fact taken place, then it would certainly give ammunition to the opponents of the government. Say Woon Koo there of the online magazine Korea Expose. And a reminder of our top story this hour, an official report detailing decades of sexual and physical abuse at a Roman Catholic school in Germany has accused senior staff of failing to protect hundreds of boys. Alexander Probst was a victim of the abuse at the school in Regensburg and he told NewsHour it was difficult to speak up about it at the time. When you tell about it, you are not given any meals, you are, you are not allowed to drink, and so so it's very, very hard to do anything against. You are living there, and you have to play with their rules, because if you don't, you have to fear you won't uh, live it. And one other headline this hour, President Trump has voiced disappointment after another setback to Republican efforts in the United States Senate to scrap Obamacare. This is Rebecca Kesby with NewsHour live from the BBC World Service in London. Now, just a week ago, there were exuberant scenes in Iraq as government forces retook its second city of Mosul from the violent clutches of the so-called Islamic State. This is what some civilians had to say to the radio station Al Khad FM, which has been broadcasting into Mosul throughout the past three years. Congratulations. I can't believe it. We really can't believe it. Really, we can't. This is a special time for the people of Mosul. It's the day of our liberation. Our thanks go to the security forces and the citizens of Iraq. Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abedi declared victory, claiming that the idea of a caliphate had collapsed into failure. But is he right? Even though ISIS is under serious pressure in Syria and Iraq, just yesterday the Pakistani authorities announced a major offensive on ISIS fighters in its tribal borderlands with Afghanistan. And there are concerns that many ISIS fighters are still active in Libya and elsewhere. I've been speaking to Ali Sufan, a former FBI special agent who was active in the hunt for Osama bin Laden and he's recently written a book about the rise of the so-called Islamic State. So is this the beginning of the end for the group? Well, it might be the beginning of the end to the group that we know as ISIS today. But also, I think we have to keep in mind that ISIS can uh, go back to an underground terrorist organization. We predicted back in 2014 when we did our very first research in the Safan group on ISIS, we predicted that ISIS will go again from being a proto-state to being an underground terrorist organization. And now what we have seen in Mosul and uh, what's happening in Iraq 
ISIS is going back as a terrorist organization. So we have to be very uh, careful in claiming that ISIS is done. Uh, remember Al-Qaeda after 9-11, a lot of people thought we kicked them out of Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda was over. And even after we killed Osama bin Laden, we thought the organization will die with him. That's not what happened. These uh, organizations, uh, they have a very resilient ideology. That ideology appears to kind of reinvent itself and reinvent the group with it. So ISIS won't be the same organization as we know it today, but ISIS in some form or another will continue to pose a threat, not only in Iraq and Syria, but also in London and Washington and New York. You mentioned al-Qaeda, and I suppose one of the things that was rather different, really, with the so-called Islamic State was the amount of territory that it uh, won and retained for a, a number of months and even years in some areas. But they have suffered losses of men and also of capability. But tactically, what might they try next? Where are their strongest hands? It depends on what shape ISIS will be at after the fall of Iraq and after the fall of Mosul. For example, when bin Laden was killed six years ago, seven years ago, the organization of al-Qaeda had many of its top leaders still alive. The situation with ISIS is a lot different. Uh, many of the top leaders of ISIS, the people who established the organizations, are dead. Even uh, if Baghdadi died, we don't really know who is going to take his place. The unluckiest job in ISIS is to be number two, because the moment you start doing operations and involved with different affiliates and provinces, we know who you are and you're killed. So ISIS does not have the structure that al-Qaeda have after the death of Osama bin Laden. They are weakened tremendously. However, that will open an opportunity when the Islamic State is once again stateless and if there is no caliph, I believe many of the ISIS uh, jihadists might go back to their mother organization. The Prime Minister of Iraq, Haider al-Abadi, is right then in saying that it is important to make these military gains against ISIS then. It is important to defeat them sure. in the places where they claim to have power. So he's right to say that that is a victory over them. But what are the other obstacles in getting rid of this ideology ultimately? I mean... Is this something that will be achieved in anyone's lifetime or is this the new normal that some sort of violent extremism is going to find a way through? Well, I think it can be achieved, frankly. I mean, defeating ISIS in the physical spaces that they occupy, this is only half of the battle. Defeating them in the spaces that they occupy in the hearts and minds of the believers and in the hearts of minds of the disenfranchised and the alienated is actually the real battle. And this is the most difficult battle. And we need to figure out what makes people join uh, organizations like ISIS, uh, organizations like Al-Qaeda, why this ideology is uh, appealing. And that differs from one place to another. If you look into France, for example, or Belgium, you see a lot of things that has to do with assimilation. This is what is basically one of the major incubating factors that feed into extremism. If you look at the Middle East today and what makes these ideologies appealing to people, basically it has to do with the Arab Spring and the chaos uh, that Al-Qaeda and other 
groups capitalized on. But it's not just Middle Eastern countries that are affected by this and being inspired by these groups, is it? Because you've got all the Western uh, converts to this violent extremism. Uh, just this week, a German teenager was found in Mosul having uh, left her home country to go and be part of the so-called Islamic State. I mean, that shows, doesn't it, the power of this idea and the challenge of trying to defeat that. Absolutely. I mean, look, you have 40,000 foreign fighters that have joined the conflict zone in Iraq and Syria from 100 different countries. And we have about a 20% of the people who left, uh, at least from the West, went back uh, to their countries. And only a handful can create havoc and can create chaos, as we've seen in Paris or as we've seen in Belgium. You know, in Europe, for example, we have about 5,000 from Western Europe who uh, went and joined the conflict zone in Iraq and Syria. And they differ. People who went from Belgium and France went for different reasons that people then went from the UK and Germany. There are ethnic issues. There are assimilation issues. There are political issues. And yes, every now and then, uh, there are uh, people who went because they believe this is the right thing to do uh, for their religion. Uh, However, uh, in some countries, up to 80% of people who left have criminal records. Uh, They are part of gangs and they were attracting these individuals and these types of people. So there are so many reasons which make defeating them in the hearts and minds of people who they might appeal to a complicated situation because there is no cookie cutter approach here. What works in Belgium won't work in London and what works in London probably won't work in Birmingham. And we know that in New York City, what works in Queens definitely won't work in Minnesota. So we need to basically find local solutions for this global problem. Ali Sufan, former FBI special agent, speaking to me earlier. That's it for this edition. From me and the whole NewsHour team, thanks very much for listening. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.